Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. It's the last show of the year. It's Christmas time. Are you excited? Yes, I love the festive season. It's probably cliche, but I do love giving gifts. But this year I've actually, from doing this show, I've actually become a bit more thoughtful about where my gifts are coming from. Like Reassessed your carbon footprint around for Christmas time. A little bit, a little bit of that. And also trying to buy things that people actually want that I think are a bit more practical. Well, if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet, stick around as we'll be delving into some sustainable tips around the festive season. Also, it's getting hotter. Well, it hasn't been the past couple of days as it's turned into this murky mess in Sydney. But if you're going to head to the beach, more people going to the beach this time of year, hotter weather, and people, I guess, getting more freaked out about sharks this time of year. Yeah, especially with all that stuff that's happening on the north coast in New South Wales. But you'll hear another story about a shark tracking technology and how we might be able to preemptively detect them in the water. But up first... Because we've become amazing consumers over the last 200 years, businesses have become brilliant at marketing. This is Clifford Moss. He's the director of something called Good Business Matters. Whether it's a marketing for an experience to go and eat and drink or, or, or it's marketing for a, a new plastic toy or a new this or a new that, we've just become so good at eating and drinking and consuming large amounts of stuff that there's no better time to divert very slightly people's attention to the fact that they can go on doing this thing that they've become very good at consuming, but they can do it in a conscientious way. And what time is Clifford talking about? Well, Christmas time, of course. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. It's a week until Christmas today, and I'm sure you're either really excited for it or sick of seeing tinsel on about everything and kind of just want it to be over. But there's one big thing you can't deny. Most people seem to get a little crazy this time of year. And as Clifford was just saying, everyone gets a little crazy with their spending. There's presents for you to buy for your family, your siblings, your extended family, friends. You have to buy food for lunch, dinner, decorations for the table, stuff for the house, stuff for the pets. <sighs> it's a lot of stuff. But do you really need all that stuff? So we're trying to tie two parts of the brain together, the citizen part of the brain and the consumer part of the brain. So Clifford is also the founder of something called the Good Christmas Trail. It's essentially a website that showcases shops, products and the work of businesses that are all social enterprises. Quick background, social enterprises are organisations that have written in their business strategy some sort of motivation to make a social impact. Could be environmental, social. But starting the trail, Clifford had to be clever. He really had to think about what the consumer is thinking. Back to the brain stuff. One of which is a reptilian part of the brain, our citizen part, our desire to act responsibly and look after our community and our tribes because that's how we used to be we used to look after our our own people but to link that to the other part of the brain which has been 
developed quite beautifully and honed amazingly over the last 200 years since industrialization and mechanization. That being our consumer part of the brain, the little voice in your head saying, I need a flat screen TV in every room of my house. Or, you know, I have to wear this much makeup, I have to, or, you know, consume, 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 consume. So we're trying to link the two by picking a key consumption moment. Like Christmas time. When the mind is focused on consuming, we're focused on celebrating, we're focused on buying gifts. So I've already got that, right? You're focused on that. Now I'm just going to shift that focus very slightly and say, you know what? Why don't you feel good about that consumption, a bit better about that consumption by buying from these guys who will divert a portion of profits or will be employing someone with a disability or will be generating some form of community benefit by that consumption decision that you've made. This all began when Clifford was thinking about crepes. Crepes, like the pastry. I opened up the newspaper and saw an an article about a uh, crepe van that was called Crepes for Change. Like a van that gives out crepes. The pastry, if if you didn't get that. I thought, well, what a great idea. Let's go down to the crepe van for Christmas, maybe. We'll have a, uh, you know, a crepe and we'll write about it on on our blog. And I spoke to my business partner about it and, you know, I said to him, isn't it interesting how many more of these social enterprises in the hospitality space there are? There's also a bar and, you know, then there's kinfolk and there's the school of life and there's cafes. Why don't we go to a few of these places and, you know, we'll write about how many great social enterprises there are in the hospo space. And, And from that point, we thought, well, why don't we set up a platform for people to choose social enterprises that they could go and visit for Christmas time. Tell me about some of your favourites. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. That, that is such a hard question. One of my favourites um, is the Collingwood Toy Library. And we contacted them and said, look, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody could buy a gift voucher for a friend or loved one who has kids? And saying to that person, instead of buying your kids toys all year round... Here is a membership, 12-month membership to the toy library. So they can have toys all year round, but they're toys that they share with other members of the community who also book them out in a sort of library format. Where is this library? Well, this particular one's in Collingwood, but, you know, there are hundreds of these things around the country. These are very tiny organisations. They're run by volunteers. They don't have two beans to rub together in terms of budgets yet they offer this incredible service and they really this is real local community stuff you know you you walk to your toy library with your kid you pick out some toys you go home you play with them for a couple of weeks and then you take them back and they clean them and they get them ready for the next person so and and it was our idea to offer a gift voucher i mean that that's the sort of thing that we want every toy library to offer all year round offer gift vouchers get people to do more of this stuff because it's brilliant what you do is brilliant How has the trail changed your Christmas? Well, all my Christmas presents, bar one, are being bought from social enterprises this year. I've never done that before. Like, why did you buy? Well, so long as this podcast doesn't come out before my wife gets her Christmas present. Attention, if you are Clifford's wife, divert your ears for the next 20 seconds or so. Um, I'm buying, um, for my wife from the School of Life, I'm buying a, um, a bibliotherapy voucher. What's that? 
A bibliotherapy voucher is a um, like a, a traditional therapy session. You meet somebody for some therapy around a reading list. So they choose a reading list for you. They're experts in the books around emotional intelligence and culture and so on and so forth. And by meeting you and getting to know you, they can pull together a reading list which is appropriate to your state of mind and where you're at. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was really, really good. And I thought, you know, Starley, my wife, will love this. What about what about even are there some social enterprises on the trail that kind of help you if you want to get like food on the table on Christmas Day or if you want to get decorations around the house? Are there ones like that as well? No, you know what? I haven't come across any like that, but it's a, it's a great idea. Will it move beyond hospitality and gifts? Probably not for Christmas because Christmas is about hospitality and gift giving, but could it extend to uh, services like the one you've talked about? It may be. I mean, this would be amazing. I mean, I hadn't even thought of what you just said. Wouldn't that be amazing? Talk about catalyzing responsible business. That's what we exist for. That's what I get out of bed for. And I think that that is one of the reasons why I brought up the toy library. That's a not-so-obvious one that I'm very keen on. You know, not as obvious as buying a crepe and knowing that you're helping rehome somebody or buying a, a hoodie from Hosier Hoodies, which has a piece of street art on it that's been created by one of the street artists that does a lot of graffiti in and around the lanes of Melbourne, and knowing that $20 from that $60 or $70 hoodie is going to help the homeless around Flinders Street. I mean, that's very, very clear, classic social enterprise thing to do, and it's, it's fantastic. I just want them to do little kids' hoodies. <laughs> Clifford Moss from The Good Christmas Trail. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. So you're an avid swimmer. Do you get around to the beach a lot? At this time of year? I do. I'm actually doing an ocean swim tomorrow in <laughs> <Of> Sydney. <laughs> where? Where are you doing it? Uh, at Balmoral. Okay. Do you often, or have you, had an encounter with a shark? Never had a shark encounter. Although I do, I was actually swimming at Balmoral last week. And I, because the waves are really choppy, I thought I kept seeing dark things. But I think it was just the tip of the wave. But, you you know, that's the risk you take when you go into the water. How about if you've been doing just a casual swim or one of these marathons? things. Has the siren ever gone off when you're in the water? Oh, like when I've been at Bondi before, the siren's gone off. Has it gone off for you before? No, I've never been at the beach and had to evacuate the water, probably because I'm never at the beach (laughs) or going to the water. Yeah, you do hate the beach. (laughs) But these shark alarms are kind of the main indicator of, you know, when a shark may be lurking. But what if we had a more effective system to track sharks? Here's Bill Gladstone, head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. The technology that we're testing, it's based on sonar, and sonar are those instruments that you have on the bottom of ship's hulls, and they're even the people using their boats as fish detectors. Excuse my amateur science. When we're talking about sonar, is that like vibrations in the water? At one level it is, yeah. It's a very high-pitched frequency of sound that goes beyond the level of hearing of of marine animals. And it sends out a very strong pulse, And because it's sound, it travels through the water, and when it hits an object that it can't pass through, it reflects, it bounces back, and it gets like an echo. And when you get a very high-frequency sound and it's generated from lots of different beams, 
you get a very high resolution signal or echo that's coming back when you can project that onto a video screen and it almost looks like a video of, of that object. It's such at a, at a high resolution. Right, and in this instance, that object is the shark? That's right, yeah. The technology aims to be able to detect a shark and to discriminate that from other sorts of objects like a fish or a dolphin or a piece of floating seaweed. How would it do that? It's got some very clever software that's built into the sonar and it's a high-resolution sonar, so it sends out lots of beams so it gets a very high-resolution signal that comes back and it's fine enough that it can actually analyze the swimming and movement motion of the object and the software is able to say that object that I'm looking at is swimming like a shark or that object that I'm looking at is not swimming like a shark and therefore it could be a bit of just a bit of floating seaweed it could be a school of fish or it could be a fish or a dolphin and you said as well with seaweed it's got a less of a density so is it picking up on kind of that mass as well of the object yeah it is because the density of the shark's body is is slightly different to seawater so therefore it as soon as the the sound hits it it slows down or it stops and then it gets reflected back some of it does pass through the through the body but because the animal's body is much denser than the surrounding seawater it bounces back off it Relaying that back, relaying that sonar signal back to, say, someone on shore who's trying to track sharks in, in, in a little bay or something like that. What does that signal coming back look like to the person on land? It looks like an, on an image, you, if when the image is fine enough, you can actually see something moving through the water and swimming uh, in the motion like a shark. The idea of the technology is that when it's refined, and it detects a shark, it will send a text message back to lifeguards on the beach to say, I've detected a shark, and it's more than two metres in length. So they're, they're getting a visual as well? No, there is a visual that's recorded, but the message that would go back to the beach would be just a text message to say, here's a shark, because the image is a very large data file. As you can imagine, there's lots of information in there, so it's a very large file. But then it sends out a text message that's very descriptive and does say, here's a shark, here's its approximate position, this is the size of it. Can it differentiate between different types of shark? That's a great question. At the moment, it can't do that. It's not refined enough to, to do that. All it can do is discriminate a shark from something that's not a shark. So does that mean if, say, there was an text message coming through saying that there was quite a small shark but then they realized it's just like a big fat fish is that something that might prop up as a problem hopefully not because the software the way it's designed is it sends a text message when it's at a certain level of confidence so that confidence just being it's getting more and more information about the way this object is swimming and, and its size. And as it's tracking, it's gathering more information to, so it can be much more confident about the decision. What does it look like? Like, like what is this technology? Is it, is it a camera thing? It's potentially, it looks like just a black box, maybe, you know, 20 centimeters by 10 centimeters. It's quite small. How does it differentiate from a similar system that might be used to track just standard fish? The only discrimination is it sends out a lot more beams. It's almost like having a camera with a small number of pixels versus a camera with lots and lots of pixels. You'll end up with a much finer image. And the same with the sonar, you'll end up with a much more detailed image that therefore allows the software to analyse it. When you were trialling it, where were you putting the box? Were you putting it on a boat or were you putting it on a 
boy? Like, uh, where was it positioned so that it could collect all this information? We trialled it off Port Stephens and it was secured to a mooring on the seabed. What's that, sorry? It's a, it's a big block of cement and a frame that sits on the seabed. And it sits there approximately a metre just above the sand and it points out to the, off the beach. Why Port Stephens? Like, why did you choose that site to trial this technology? Because the previous research that we have done showed that Port Stephens was a nursery area for great white sharks. It's a place where we know they gather and that they're fairly predictably there around late October, November each year. And is that the main incentive for using this technology now is for sharks like great whites? For sh- yeah, for sharks like great whites, but other sharks that are known to attack humans. The main sharks that are responsible for attacks on humans are great whites, tiger sharks, and bull sharks. We were fairly confident that we would find great white sharks at Port Stephens, and that's why we tested it there. Where do you see the use for this technology most? Do you see it in beachy areas? Do you see it in bays, like even like Sydney Harbour area? Where would this technology be best utilised? The developers of the technology are hoping that it would be useful to deploy off beaches where there's more people swimming, where you can potentially create a curtain of the sonars in front of a swimming beach between two headlands. If you put enough of them out there, you can monitor the whole area of the the entrance to a beach, or you could deploy them off an area where the bathing area, the swimming area where the surf flags are, are positioned. You could potentially position them there as well. And what value is this technology and this research to you? Because you've done an extensive amount of research in the area of sharks. What stands out about this for you? To me, the potential here is to add to the the suite of methods for monitoring sharks to seeing whether they're actually present off, off beaches. And therefore, that then raises the really relevant question about, well, do we therefore need shark nets off beaches? One of the main approaches that governments have used to reducing the likelihood of a shark attack is to put shark nets off beaches. And the idea then is you just reduce the number of sharks by actually catching them in the nets and they die. You reduce the likelihood of attack by reducing the number of sharks. Now that has a whole lot of unintended consequences when you get other animals that are become trapped and die in those nets like turtles, dolphins. So ideally and hopefully a new technology that could replace shark nets and that it's proven to be effective would be the ideal solution. Bill Gladstone, head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Hi, I'm Suji. Hello, I'm Pilar. I work at the Green Living Centre. And I work at the Green Living Centre in Newtown. And these are our five tips for a sustainable Christmas. Number one, make your own or buy secondhand. Instead of going out and buying brand new things, you can make your own maybe jams or chutneys or body scrubs or go to your local secondhand shop and get something there. Apart from that, we are also having a lot of hands-on workshops at the Green Living Center. Things like beeswax wraps, which are very cool and they smell gorgeous. Uh, We are also making Christmas decorations. That's a pretty cool thing to do. And you can bring your friend, your family, your kid, your beloved one. (laughs) Number two, cut out food wastage. 
a lot of Christmas and holiday meals end up with a lot of food wastage. So do things like plan what you're going to cook and eat and use your leftovers wisely. You can also take things from your garden. If you are a person that grows your own herbs or things like that, you can, instead of going to the shops and buy things that you're going to be throwing away, just take them from the garden and it's fresh and cool and people really like that. And I guess that kind of goes into the next tip is supporting ethical and local businesses. So places like the Green Living Center, you can get things like Worm Farms. And around Newtown, some places are Alfalfa House. So they're a food co-op and they'd be a really great organization to support. A lot of people give chocolates and things like that. And then you have to deal with the wrapping. One of the things that this year I've been doing is not to get packed food. So you can buy nuts or other products that are, you just take your jars and I've been collecting jars. We have a little bit of an obsession here, <laughs> collecting jars. So then you can put them in nice jars, put some decoration around the jar and people can reuse the jars too. Another tip, I guess, number four, get out of the consumption loop. How do, how do we do that? You know, giving donations to charities, anything from environment charities to social justice charities, whatever resonates with you or whatever resonates with the person that you're going to be buying it for. So there's animal, like lots of animal welfare organizations too that are really good to donate to. Also maybe volunteering at organizations as well, but not just at Christmas, but, you know, making that commitment to maybe do something once a month or whatever you can offer. The last tip is give the gift that keeps on giving worms or worm farms or maybe seedlings so those can grow into a garden so then people can grow their own food and I have consumables so everyone loves food or maybe even alcohol. You can't give your worms and your worm farm alcohol though, not like not the leftover brandy. No, not together. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> I guess it's a special time. <laughs> we do offer worm farming workshops and gardening workshops, but you can always come into the shop front. We can talk you through everything you need to know to set up a worm farm or compost bin or any sustainable living questions you might have. I'm Suji. I'm Pilar. And have a sustainable Christmas. Have a happy holiday. Because <laughs> now I'm taking a break. Jake, when we think of a response to climate change, usually we all think of the global response. So Paris Agreement, Kyoto Protocol. Yeah, all of that. But what are we doing at a state-based level? Emily Ryan is the Outreach Director at the Environmental Defenders Office New South Wales, or EDO New South Wales. And she joined us to talk about how New South Wales and Australia can be better at protecting the environment. In Australia, we have quite an anthropocentric view of environmental law and how it works, so a human-centred approach. But there is an emerging field around the world um, known as wild law or earth jurisprudence. Um, obviously, it's not really a new thing because it's you know got roots in the relationships of Indigenous cultures and the environment going back thousands and thousands of years. But in modern times, it's a philosophy that's about law and human governance that's based on the idea that humans are only one part of the earth community and the welfare of each member of that community is dependent on the welfare of the earth as a whole. Is there anywhere in the world where environmental law or that wild law jurisprudence 
is really ingrained in their legal system? Yeah, um, South America is doing some really positive things in the wild law space. Ecuador was the first country to recognise the rights of nature in its constitution. Uh, The Bolivian legislation, um, there's actually a law called the Act of the Rights of Mother Earth, which was made in 2010. And even our neighbours, New Zealand, have recognised the rights of rivers and forests in connection with traditional Maori custodians um, in the past couple of years. Bloody New Zealanders, they're ahead of us on everything. (laughs) Can you see Australia ever doing something like that, having the environment as part of our constitution? Um, Maybe. Our constitution is quite short and really just has the effect of, you know, giving the states and the federal government rights to make laws about certain types of things. So I think if if it was to happen in Australia, it would be a long way off. But we do have a really diverse body of environmental laws as is, uh, but they are, as I said, anthropocentric and human focused. How much of environmental law in Australia is governed by federal law and how much of it is based on what whatever the states want to do? Mm, the majority of environmental law is state-based, uh, but there is uh, the overarching Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is the Commonwealth Government's um, act that came in in 1999. And what that effectively does is operationalise our obligations under international law, so biodiversity convention and you know, world heritage and all of those agreements that we've signed and agreed to in within the UN and international agreements. Um, so the EPBC Act gives rise to those. But when it comes to the day-to-day management of the environment, planning, pollution, native vegetation, biodiversity, most of that is governed by the states. So let's talk about New South Wales. Mm. If you had to give it a rating out of 10, how good are we <laughs> at protecting our environment? Uh, The laws that we've got at the moment um, are actually pretty good, but there have been moves recently to actually really step backwards from these strong environmental protections that we've had uh, for the past 15, 20 years. One example of that would be um, the current Native Vegetation Act, which was brought in to address really wide-scale problems with clearing of native vegetation around the state. Uh, It was brought in following an independent review and lots of advice was gotten and it's been really effective in actually protecting native vegetation and biodiversity around the whole of the state. So is that stopping clearing for for things like farming? Yeah, it doesn't. uh, There's a a really broad range of activities that can still be undertaken under the Native Veg Act, uh, routine agricultural management activities, so things like fencing and clearing for certain agricultural activities. You can also enter into agreements um, so that you set aside certain areas of your land for conservation and are able to clear others. But importantly, the current laws still say no to inappropriate clearing or over-clearing or broad-scale clearing as it's currently known in the laws. And you said that they're winding back those laws. So what are they proposing? Yeah. There's or a, what have they done? What have they done? <laughs> there's a new uh, law that's passed Parliament just last month called the Biodiversity Conservation Act and the Local Land Services Amendment Act. Uh, and what these do are really remove a number of these long-held and really important protections for native veg and biodiversity in New South Wales. What are the community concerns with this act? The community is really concerned um, that, you know, the current native vegetation laws have been really strong. Um, They've been really effective. Um, They've actually 
you know, helped Australia to meet its targets under the Kyoto Protocol because of the carbon capture and storage qualities in native vegetation. They're concerned about the flow-on impacts of removing vegetation when it comes to threatened species, so the little furries like koalas, um, but also other species that are that are depending on native vegetation as habitat. Um, yeah, they're the main concerns. If we're going to be really cynical, we kind of have to work in a legal framework or in an economic framework mm-hmm. to fix the environment. Mm-hmm. What do you think is more effective? I think it's probably um, the multifaceted approach. Obviously, the law doesn't exist in a vacuum, so we do have to look at the economy and also the social factors as well. Um, when it comes to climate change and, and planning for climate change in New South Wales, we actually put a report out early this year called Planning for Climate Change, and it talks about how we would like to see in the legal framework to actually plan for climate change. So within the planning system, within the other environmental laws, within policies um, around you know, sustainable energy development, but also um, planning and development on areas that, that may be impacted by climate change. So best case scenario, what would you like to see in New South Wales legal-wise to protect the environment? Mm. We would love to see strong environmental laws that are administered in a way that actually does protect the environment. Um, We'd also like to see continued community input into how our environmental laws work, but also community access to environmental justice. Emily Ryan, Outreach Director at the Environmental Defenders Office, New South Wales. Thanks for listening to the show. This is the last Think Sustainability for the year. Sad face tear emoji. Make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you'll be the first to know when we're back next year. Or go to SoundCloud. Also, check out our website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability and revisit all the good listenings there. Think Sustainability is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. 